Good morning. Good to see everybody. Good to be back. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. All right, so before we get going here on the sermon this morning, we've got the Coots family who is going to start us off here in our Advent season. They're going to light a candle for us and talk to us just a little bit here right off the bat. So come on up. So traditions are kind of funny things. Um, we sort of think that, you know, we take them for granted that they've always just been there, um, but somebody actually has to start them. So last week, I heard uh, Mitch and Dan Keller playing uh, Come On Baby, Light My Fire by the doors after the service, and they were singing Come On Jesus, Light My Fire, and I thought that'd be a great song for, you know, lighting our Advent candles, <laughs> but they're not here today, so we'll have to maybe pass on that. Um, Every year, we light candles uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas, and you know, in some traditions, the color of the candle has meaning. Uh, in other traditions, there's sort of liturgies that are attached to um, the prophecy candle, the Bethlehem candle, the shepherd's candle, the angel's candle, and the Christ candle. Uh, I think in our church, if I have this right, try, check me on this. I think we focus on faith, hope, peace, and joy. Are those the four? Yeah. <laughs> it, it may change slightly from year to year. Um, not sure how that makes it a tradition. Um, so I thought that these traditions were kind of ancient things, you know, going back to the Dark Ages, medieval times when people actually depended on, on candles. But actually, we've only been using Advent candles in the U.S. for like 100 years. They only showed up here in the 1920s. And uh, they really only started before that in Germany, less than 100 years before that, in the 1830s. There's, uh, there's a lot to the Christmas story. And I like how the candles remind us about the big ideas while we count down to the big day. But what me, made me smile was the very first use uh, of Advent candles. A German pastor working with ur the urban poor in about 1830, noticed that when December arrived, the kids who came to his mission school would ask every day, is it Christmas today? Is it Christmas? They just wanted to know when, when Christmas was here. And so he took a cartwheel and turned it into a, a wreath and put 24 candles on it. The red ones were for weekdays, the white ones for, were for Sundays. Every day the kids had come to school, they'd light a candle, count down when the last candle was burnt out, they knew it was Christmas. You know, it was just kids excited about Christmas, excited that Christmas was coming. We get the best of both worlds. We get a weekly reminder that celebrating Jesus' birth is getting closer. And we also get to choose uh, to use that countdown as a reminder of the key elements of what belief in Jesus has given us. So today, the first Sunday of Advent, we want to focus on faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. As human beings, we're designed to have faith in something. It is an uncomfortable thing for us North Americans to have confidence in what we do not see, though. We like to have guarantees and visible outcomes. We are goal-oriented planners with endless resources. And for Christians in North America, it's hard for us to have faith in Jesus, hard to trust in someone we can't see. We want guarantees. 
We want to know that we will have enough money for retirement. We want to know that our kids will follow Christ, have good jobs, be good people. We want to do everything we can to avoid something bad happening. We want to plan our own day. We want to know that following Christ won't make us suffer or interrupt our plans or adjust our desired outcomes. So we somehow gradually stop following him and we start to follow ourselves, living for the outcomes we want. We put our faith in ourselves and live for outcomes we desire, safe, painless, comfortable, visi visible outcomes. I know because that's how I lived before the planned outcome of living to be an old lady was completely changed. <laughs> Terminal cancer changed all that, and now I have been reminded by my sweet, loving Jesus that I'm not in charge of that outcome or any other outcome. Faith in myself was an illusion because I, um, I'm sorry, faith in myself was an illusion because I have no control over any outcome, especially life or death or anything in between. I praise God he has taken away that illusion and has helped me understand that he is the decider of every outcome. He has told me the most important outcomes that I get to be with him someday and that he wins the battle over evil. But the day-to-day -day outcomes are invisible to me. They require faith that he knows the outcomes. And I can trust him because I know who he is. I know his character, his love, his wisdom. So even if I don't know the outcome of daily things, or even when I will die, be it in six months or in six years, I can trust this extremely competent father who is more than able to take care of the big things and the little things. As Christians, trusting in our own outcomes becomes a faith killer. Submitting and surrendering to the Lord's outcomes is a faith grower, a faith giver. When we can't see the outcome, we live each day by faith and smile at how his way unfolds before us. It gives me great joy and draws me nearer and nearer to him. It is the safest place to be in the path of the one who can plan and see every outcome perfectly. We humans will have faith in something, and each day, each day, we get to decide what that something is. I love you guys. You are my church family, and my greatest desire is to be walking in faith with you each day. So let's, let's do that, can we? Thanks, you guys. That was really, that was really good. It's true. It's, we don't know what kind of day we're going to wake up to. You have no clue. Um, and, and certainly in these times, uh, we, we should be a people who at this point understand that yesterday doesn't need to, uh, today doesn't need to look like yesterday, and there's no guarantees that it will. So we're going to start, and we're, we're talking about humility of Christmas, and Anna was talking a lot about this, and so we just decided to do this as a series. But everything about Christmas is, is just steeped in humility. And, and, and it's just this beautiful picture of humility, of the humility of God and, and who he is. And so today, we're going to talk about just this concept and the idea of just humble servants, okay? So we'll start off this. In 1896, two ships collided off of the coast of Russia in the Black Sea. Hundreds of passengers lost their lives as they were thrown into the icy waters. Through investigating the cause of this disaster, they found that it wasn't a technology problem or even the thick fog. Human stubbornness and pride were the cause of the problem. Each captain could have steered clear of each other. 
They were aware of one another's ship nearby, but neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield, so they collided, and hundreds of passengers died as a result. Their lack of humility resulted in a disaster. And I would hold that our lack of humility at many times results in disastrous situations, even within our own lives, that, that humility is just this thing that breaks down the barriers of pride, and it really places us in a place where God would really have us and where we're most useful. So what really is humility? I mean, sometimes we even struggle with what is this? How do we define humility? What is humility? Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really proud of my humility. Um, I'm, and um, so... So, so there's a trap in humility even, right? Because, because there's a pridefulness within us that just lives, and it's part of that sin nature thing that, that lives within us, and it's, it can sneak out at just any given time. Even humility can become a source of pride in our own lives. We, we, we can begin to uh, make differentiations between us and others according to even how humble we are. So, so this thing, this, this self, this thing that always wants to come and sit up on the throne, this old man that, that really God has called us to, that it needs to die, it needs to die daily, will do anything to sit upon the throne of your heart. Even emulate a spiritual person, a humble, spiritual, and contrite person in order to sit on that throne. One thing we know is we don't really like arrogance, right, in this culture. We, we, we tend to not like arrogant people. We tend to be a people who can't wait to see people who are arrogant fall or trip or or mess up, or kind of get what they've got coming to them. But you know, as Daryl talked about, that wasn't always the case. Um, culturally, for the Greeks and the Romans, they actually, um, the, uh, the, the concept of the idea of humility was much closer to a vice than a virtue. It was actually Christianity and Jesus who brought humility into uh, the, the, the place of it becoming actually a virtuous thing in life versus a uh, uh, something that, that wasn't to be sought after. You see, they, they, they kind of thought this. They thought that, that it was a, that virtue, or, or that, I'm sorry, humility, uh, that, that it was something that was a destroyer of desire and accomplishment. Because for you to be humble or you to put yourself lower than other people meant that you gave up the, you know, your own desire to, to move forward. It took away your drive and, and those kinds of things. Uh, and, and so... So, so they believed that, but, but it was this crazy thing that began. And, and by the time that Jesus had lived on the earth and, and Christians had influenced the culture around them for just a matter of uh, hundreds of years, even the Caesar himself began to acknowledge the concept of humility. And so if you live in the Western world, you get that concept of humility. And the reason we get the concept of humility is, be, is because of how much Christian culture has pressed into Western civilization. And so we understand how much Christianity has impacted the culture around us by the degree that the culture around us actually experiences or practices humility on many levels. It was pride itself, really, that led to the fall of humanity, and it's humility that is the pathway back to our redemption. There's a Chinese proverb, and it said this. It says that all rivers lead to the ocean because the ocean is lower. And it's that idea that God has this concept that even through humility that he will exalt us. So let's look into some of this here. Click, if I'm clicking. There we are. King of our castle. Proverbs 15, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. 
So, so this humility, the concept and the idea of humility and the, the concept of the idea of the fear of the Lord are really one and the same. As a matter of fact, you can't have a fear of the Lord if we are just looking to ourselves, if we're continually in a place of, of, of self-exaltation, if we're in a place of self-empowerment. It's not until we start to recognize the awe and the wonder of God that we actually place ourselves in a right place. When we begin to fear the Lord, not in a way that, that causes us to, to think of God like this, but as we begin to see God for the awe and the wonder and the power and the reality of who God really is. See, when we get that, it has an effect in our lives of bringing us to a place of, of humility, and it also brings us to a place of wisdom. Why? Because there's a reality of us that, that we don't really possess wisdom in and of ourselves. If God is all power, then he's the source of all good things. The Bible tells us that in James, that he's a, he's a good father, he's the father of lights, and all good gifts come from him. All good things emanate out of God. And when we get into self, and we get too deep into self, this is the place where pride takes over, ego takes over, and it's the, it's the core principal place where, where almost all sin develops out of that place. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. See, this is, this is in such contrast to who we are and who the world is around us. See, Jesus was always challenging the world around us and challenging us with who we really are. He, he's, he's always bringing in these things that totally flip the kingdom upside down, and, and, and it brings these concepts in these ways that really don't make sense to us. Like, if you want to live, you got to die. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the servant of all. You see, these are the humble principles by which God is calling us to live as Christians. But this isn't a place that leads us to a place out of power. No, as a matter of fact, in Proverbs as well, it even says that riches come through humility, that it's the basis point for these things, that actually that, that, that the, the concept of humility and exaltation are just the flip side of the same coin, right? Peter said this, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you right? So self-exaltation is really the way of the world. It's the, it's the way that the world tells us to live our lives. And it's really in contrast to what a real biblical worldview begins to look like. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Philippians 2, 1 and 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, see, in Roman culture, it was, it was actually kind of understandable if you, if you submitted yourself to someone who was greater than you, someone who had like a Caesar or the gods because they could kill you, but you would never humble yourself before a peer or somebody who was inferior. That was considered, that was just, that was just ridiculous, but we are called to be a people who count others as more significant than ourselves. So we'll look at some of this. Job, the book of Job, powerful book, right? 
the book that we hope will conquer the, the concept of suffering for us that doesn't really do it. We see Job goes through this horrible thing, right? And, and, and we see that, that Job um, experiences horrible suffering and loss in his life. And, and, and it's, it's not because of what he's done. Job finally gets upset with God. And he says this. He says, okay, bring my accusations. Bring the charges before me. So, so that, and, and, and I'm just going to show you that my, my rap sheet is clean. I haven't done any of this stuff. And so what God does then is goes for several chapters and just begins to tell Job what he doesn't know. He begins to tell him like, you know, were you, were you there when I, when I caused the ocean to burst forth out of the earth? You know, can you, can you move Orion across the sky? Can you, can you move the Pleiades? Can you bring the stars up? Can you do any of these things? And the answer to that is obviously is no, that we can't. Finally, what happens is that Job gets to this place and he says this. It says, this says, then Job answered the Lord, and this is after God has spent chapters telling Job what he doesn't know. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So what is Job saying there? Job is saying, look, I, I thought I had a concept of some of this stuff. I thought I got it. I thought I understood things. I, I really thought that I could, you know, just kind of call you out, God, and then you would have to answer me. But what I've come to understand is that, is that actually what I need to do is, is ask you and let you tell me, God, how this works. I can tell you personally, for me, the day that my life changed was the day that I said this, God, I don't know who you are, but if you'll show me who you are, I want to follow you. That's the day my life began to change. I think it was kind of a done deal at that point. I, I didn't really become a Christian at that point, but that's the day I became on the way to becoming Christian. Why? Because I'd finally humbled myself. I'd given up the job of being God of the universe. I'd given up the idea that I could somehow create a belief system and say, this is what I believe, this is what I believe, and this is what I believe, and that God would have to accept the belief system that I came up with. I began to humble myself and recognize that what I really needed to do was hear from God and let him tell me. You notice what you don't see from God in this is that God doesn't say this. When, when Job says this, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes, God doesn't say this to him, oh no, Job. No, really, seriously, you're my righteous guy. I mean, you're really a pretty good guy, actually. You're my righteous guy, and you were, I declared you that before that. So, so don't, don't be so hard on yourself. It's never said that way. And that's really in contradiction to how we tend to deal with these things, right? We, instead of getting real with our sin and, and actually getting humble and getting to a place and opening ourselves up to a place where, where we're living in the reality of who we really are so that we can receive the healing that God really wants to give us, but he can only give it to us in reality, we step outside of that. We live in a place called denial. We deny the reality of who we are and, and, and what we've been and what we've done. We, we live in the pride of who we are and we see ourselves. And pride has this way of just exalting ourselves and, and, and magnifying who we are and minimizing the reality of who God is. This is why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the right understanding of, of who God is. It sets us in our proper place and it begins to reframe the world around us. 
But what would we say? I mean, we would be there with Job. We would be like, no, no, Job, Job, don't talk like that about yourself. Don't say such negative things about yourself. No, you're a great guy, Job. You're a righteous guy. It goes on. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has been a prophet for six chapters before he ever sees God. And he's a big deal. A lot of stuff going on with Isaiah there. And then all of a sudden, he has this encounter where, where in, the, in, in, the, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, he sees God for who God really is. And it says that the whole place was just filled with smoke and there were just these massive, just these, these angelic beings that were just, they were flying with two wings and covering their face with two wings and covering their feet. Why? Because they were humbled before the presence of God. And they just continually were saying, holy, 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 right? And Isaiah said this, it says the foundations of the thresholds shook as the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Job says, I'm ruined, I'm done, I'm undone. I've seen God, I've seen the reality of my sinful self, and because I've seen God in that condition, now I'm dead. I'm not gonna make it, I'm gonna die. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. What isn't said here is, oh no, Job, actually, most of the stuff that you, or not Job, Isaiah, most of the things that you say are good things. Most of what you said, actually, Isaiah, you've been a prophet of mine for, no, don't say that your mouth is bad. Don't, don't, no, what happens is that an angel of the Lord takes tongs and brings a coal and touches his lips and purifies him and brings him into a place and restores him. But sometimes this is like a, this is not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to look at ourselves in the mirror for real, to really deal and do business with God as to who we really are versus the perception in our head of how we think we are. It's always the same thing. Peter, whenever he recognized that he was in the presence of God, um, they were out on the boat and there was this catch, right? And, and, and the boats were, were coming in. The boats began to sink. And Peter's response to Jesus is this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It wasn't about the fish. It wasn't about the catch. It wasn't about anything that was going on. It was about the reality that he understood that he was in the presence of God. And what that did to him was it, it didn't exalt him, it actually humbled him. But when we humble ourselves before God, it's God who then exalts us. See, in the world, and the world just has it backwards, the world says that if you exalt yourself, then you'll be exalted, right? But there's a reality here that when we, when we humble ourselves from God, this is the place of exaltation. This is the place of honor. This is the place even of riches, it says. Not just financial, but there's all kinds of riches. See, without humility, we can't be open to the Holy Spirit and the workings of the Holy Spirit. We'll be, we won't believe what we see God doing around us. We'll, we'll be too prideful if it's not something that makes sense to us or, or seems to be the way that we would do it. Because honestly, rarely do the things of God make sense to us on a lot of levels. Look at the whole of how this happened. Look at the whole of the humility of Christmas. It should have all just disappeared. It should have faded into obscurity thousands of years ago, but yet it's still is changing the world and it's changing lives today. And the engine for this thing is humility. 
See, without humility, we cannot uh, accept the terms of salvation. We won't accept God's terms of salvation. We won't enter into his kingdom because Jesus tells us that to come into his kingdom, we have to come humbly as a child, right? So it's this thing. It's this thing that keeps us outside of the party. It keeps us outside of God's kingdom. Nowhere in Scripture is a humble person turned away. Although it does tell us that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, will be saved on that final day. So it's not about, it's not about a, a stance of the mouth. It's not about a stance of the mind. It's about a stance of the heart before a holy and righteous God. Luke chapter 1 starts to talk about this and, and these, these servants. I want to look just a little bit. And just a couple of different examples that we get. In Luke chapter 1, we kind of see an interesting con uh, contrast. And one is with, with, the, with this uh, priest, Zechariah, who is in the, in the temple. And, and, and he has this encounter with an angel. And it says this. It says, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 11. If you want to grab your Bible or turn it on and, and read with me. It says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to this angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which, were, which will be fulfilled in their time. So what's happened? John the Baptist is, is now conceived between Zechariah and his wife. And, and or it's told that this is going to happen. But Zechariah, he doesn't answer in faith. And he doesn't really answer in humility. The way that he answers is really in doubt and in pride. Like, I know something here. My wife and I are really old. How is it that I'm going to know this? Because it can't happen now. And I want you to notice the difference there between that and, and, and what happens with Mary. Because there's a very similar thing that happens here, but a different outcome. In verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, that is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Similar circumstances, similar engagements with this angel, Gabriel, but a different outcome. With Zechariah, he said, look, I know something. There's a problem here. I'm old, my wife is old. This can't happen. And Gabriel said, look, I stand in the presence of God. And I came to tell you this. And you don't believe this. You're, you're not moving forward in faith. Mary, however, had a different reaction to that. Hers was with faith. She, she still said, that she's told, you're going to have a baby. And Mary said, whoa, wait a minute, I'm a virgin. There's a problem with that. How's this going to be? But you see, she didn't make the, the proclamation that I know this can't happen. She merely asked the question, how will this be? Sometimes I think things with faith, we start to struggle with the idea of faith. Like, what does faith look like sometimes? Well, well faith doesn't always look like knowing the end. As a matter of fact, it totally doesn't look like knowing the end, right? It's the hope in the unseen, faith is. And, and, and faith is this, this thing that, that moves us again into that realm of trust with God. It moves us outside of the pride of self and our own abilities, our own thoughts, the way that we think it ought to go. You know, Abraham, when he was, before he, when he was called uh, the, the father of faith in the book of Hebrews, when, when we see this list of all these people who are given accolades for their faith, Abraham is, is one who's he's called the father of faith. But in chapter 15 of Genesis, when, when Abraham, it says that he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved by faith the same way as we are, before the law even, right? He's saved by grace through faith. But the next question out of Abraham's mouth is, he's, because he's told that he's going to have this land and descendants, and they're going to be like the, the stars and the sand on the seashore. And he says, but God, how will I know this will really come to pass? So it's a question. So sometimes we think in this idea that we can't ever question in the place of faith. But how we question, the Bible tells us somewhere in the New Testament, I promise, it says this, it says, he who thinks he knows something does not, yet ought, does not yet know as he ought to know. So in other words, what is it saying? It's saying that the result of really getting understanding and wisdom in your life isn't that it produces in you an arrogance or an understanding of, of like what all you know. What it actually does is it humbles us and it brings us into a place of what we don't really know and puts us back into a place and a stance of faith where we can rightly just even ask these questions. Mary goes on. And there's this, this song that she sings, she, a song of praise, the Magnificat. And it goes like this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. Remember, this is the beginning of Christianity. This is the this is the the place where it's happened. She's conceived. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so what is this? It's again, it's the idea that humility and exaltation, they're the same coin, different sides. We begin with humility. When we start with humility, it's God who exalts us. It's not us who exalts ourselves. Remember, that's where this all fell. But the path of restoration, the path of wholeness, the path of healing that God is leading us all into really begins with humility. And think of the humility of Mary, who just humbly said, may it be done to your servant according to your will. And that's really the stance that we need to take, that God, whatever your will is, whatever your will is for me, whether I get it, whether I understand it, whether it makes sense to me or not, may it be done according to, to your word, to what you say. Right? And, and, and she said that in the face of a reality for her, that she's about to be looked at, laughed, worse than that, possibly stoned to death, Right? That she's certainly going to be the source of pointing and a lot of jeers and snickering and a lot of talk. A, a lifetime of kind of just going, wow, how, how does this work? How is, it, how is it that I'm doing this and God has called me to this? But her response to that is just simply a humble, may it be done to me as you've said. And even Joseph, think about him too, right? It says that he got to a place where he... Mary said, hey, look, um, I'm going to have a baby, and it's by the Holy Spirit. And he's like, uh, yeah, right. Um, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divorce her, but I'm going to do it in a way that doesn't just dishonor her in front of everybody. I'm going to do it quietly. Because when you're betrothed, which is where they were at, when they were given to one another, there was already a legal binding agreement between them for their marriage. And so, so he was going to have to divorce her, and he was going to divorce her, but then he had an encounter with this angel, right? And the angel told him, look, it's going to be okay. It really is exactly what, what she said. It's, it's by the Holy Spirit. And so the humility, too, of Joseph to just step into that place, that place of kind of being a, a stepdad even. Any of you in that position knows it takes a lot of humility even to be in that spot. It takes a lot of humility to live in family, Right? It takes a lot of humility to be a church and to function together and to keep going. Because if any of us begins to think that we've got all the answers, then we'll begin to, again, evaluate and judge and we'll judge performance and we'll judge thought and, 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 and all of those things will be according to the standard of our own pride and our own ego. There's one thing we really need today, I would say, in our culture, in the churches, in the world around us, boy, a good dose of humility would really go a long ways right now. If we'd all just put down the idea of like, hey, I'm right, this is the standard, and you all need to adhere to it. No, that's not the standard. There's the standard. Everything that I 
hold fast to, the things that I'm dogmatic about are the things that this tells me to be dogmatic about. Some of the other things, there's things in here, honestly, that, that really don't get addressed in, in, in really clear ways where we can be dogmatic in our approach. And <clears throat> in those, I would just encourage us and counsel us to, to just humbly step back and, and allow God to be God. <clears throat> to move forward on our convictions, to the convictions that God has given you through the Holy Spirit, to stick strong and to hold fast with that, but to do it in all humility with the recognition of, may it be done to me, Lord, according to your, your ways and your will, not according to me. So Jesus was great. He was good at turning everything upside down. And through humility, he came and uprooted the entire system that the Greeks and the Romans had, had, had put forth. He undid, he undid everything. <clears throat> and certainly, humility was a concept to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, but it was Jesus who centralized the concept of humility. He's the one who, who began to tell us, you know, to, to, to love those who don't love you back, right? To if they, if they force you to go a mile, go two. If they slap you on one cheek, turn the other one to them. Uh, pray for your enemies, right? All of these things are, are calls for us, for God's church, to be a humble people. The big question is this, are we willing to lay ourselves aside and to live as Jesus did that we might gain everything? So Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that all that you do, Lord, is just based in humility, that, that we look to what you've done and, and, and we're just in awe of, of how you just, you work through, through humble people. You work through humble circumstances. You didn't come and just pronounce yourself to be king and, and ask that everyone would bow before you. You came humbly, and you, you changed the world through that. Lord, help us as your church to recognize the power of humility. Help us to understand that, that, that we're not talking about something that is void of power. We're not talking about self-deprecation. Uh, we're talking about the flip side of humility, which is exaltation. That when we as your people even live humbly in the culture and the world around us, when we press into that culture, but we do it in love and we do it in humility, we begin to change the world around us. So Lord, guard us in our own hearts. Guard us from our pride and from our ego, from those things that just would say that we're, we're, we're absolutely right and we're steadfast on it and, and, and it's all about our thoughts and how we feel. Help us to, to be rescued from that. Help us to not operate in this world the same way that the world operates. Help us not to base our things in, in, in fear and feeling, but help us, Lord, to be rooted and to grounded by faith in humility before you so that we might walk as you would have us to walk, so that we might even hear your voice, so that we can tone down our own voice so that yours can even be heard, Lord. Help us, Lord, that we would walk humbly with you each and every day. And we ask that you'd start a mighty work in each one of us, Lord, because there's a reality that we're just, we're full of self, that I'm selfish. I, I, I want things my way, and I think I'm smarter than everybody else. And at times, God, I think I'm smarter than you. So, Lord, we're just asking that you would just take all that away, that you would tear that down, Lord, that you would give us an authentic humility, that, Lord, we would consider others as more important than ourselves, and that we would trust you with the whole of who we are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.